verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Here I am. He's so willing, isn't he? He's so uh, available. God speaks, Abraham answers. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear God's voice? Who wouldn't respond just the same way with breathless eagerness? My voice has been spoken. Here I am. But you want to be careful what you wish for. Because many times uh, since Genesis chapter 12, we've heard God speak to Abraham. Uh, God has spoken to Abraham repeatedly to bless him, uh, to reassure him, to make promises to him, and to bring Abraham in on his own plans. But now it says God speaks to test Abraham. And this is what he says, verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This might be the most terrible chapter in the whole Bible. There's other contenders for the most terrible chapter in the whole Bible. For immediate reference, Genesis, the book of Genesis, contributes its fair share. Chapter 3, in some ways, is where it all begins, is the fall of mankind. So from a place of perfect communion with God, Adam and Eve choose sin and self over God, and they bring on suffering, separation, and death. That's a pretty terrible chapter. Uh, It's terrible for what it says about us. But Genesis chapter 22 is terrible for what it might say about God. Uh, Again, in contenders for terrible chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 7, God floods the earth, destroying everything in it except eight humans and a bunch of animals. Well, that's terrible for what it might say about God. But even then... Genesis 7 and the chapters around it, it it is quite clear that in that context, the perspective is that mankind, since Genesis chapter 3, has become irredeemably corrupt and uh, and as terrible as it might seem, justice is being served and they are getting what the Bible tells us is deserved in the moment. So terrible but sensible in a way. Uh, What we read only two weeks ago in Genesis chapter 20 is another contender for most terrible uh, chapter in the Bible. The whole city of Sodom conspires together to rape two visiting angels. The city is destroyed by fire. And then the one family that God spared, Lot and his two daughters, are immediately embroiled in their own case of assault and incest. You can read it for yourself if you weren't here two weeks ago. Well, that brings everything together nicely, doesn't it? Uh, When looking for the most terrible chapter in the Bible, it's got rape, incest, God's judgment, everything. But still, it's a continuation of uh, the already established theme of people being people and God being God. People returning to be more like beasts than the humans God made them to be. And God ordering and setting things straight and doing what is just, uh, even if it's hard. But then Genesis chapter 22, what we read today, comes from nowhere. Suddenly God is the devil, in a way, of the story. Never before or since does God appear to condone or require child sacrifice. But 
even then, to just say, oh, well, he only did it that one time, well, that's barely a statement in God's favour, is it? He still did it one time. If a dog who's been a loyal family pet bites a child just one time, you destroy the dog without question. Why wouldn't you close your Bible at Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, and never open it again? The fact that we already know the end, that ultimately God spares Abraham's son Isaac, well, that doesn't count to make things any better at this point, does it? God still asks. And Abraham doesn't know that. This is one part of God's plan that Abraham hasn't been brought in on yet. What a terrible thing to ask. What a th- is it sin that God is asking Abraham to commit? Or does it become not sin because God said so? And God doesn't do anything to soften the blow either, if you look at the words behind me. God makes no effort to pitch or spin the idea to make it sound more appealing or less devastating. You get the impression as God measures his words deliberately one by one to Abraham that God knows precisely what he's asking and the cost. God says, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take your son, your flesh and blood, your only son. Well, you know the one. He's your wife's son too, by the way. But he's your only son. He's got a name. The name I told you to give him when I promised him to you, Isaac. Well, you don't name things that you're planning to destroy, do you? Your son... He says, whom you love. Now take him, bind him, cut him open and burn him to ash for me. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Immediately and methodically, Abraham obeys. Years ago, uh, I went bungee jumping just once and I'll never do it again. Uh, Even though I'm a massive cheapskate and I had to pay up front, I was pretty sure that I still wasn't going to do it. Uh, The whole way, I was thinking, I can't. I won't, I can't, I won't. But there seems to be a real method to getting you to do it. Once you're strapped in, they don't let you think anymore. They badger you. They rush you. They are in your ear giving you constant and minute instructions, drowning out your own thoughts until they count down three, two, one, jump, and you actually just do. And I still can't believe I did. But you're rushed and and you're not allowed to think. They don't let you. But Abraham's task is so much more terrible. He enters fully into the logistics. He coordinates his household. And then he sleeps on it. And then he rises early. And he saddles his own donkey. And he cuts the wood himself. And he wakes two of his servants. And finally, he wakes his son. The son's just coming up and he says, Come on, mate, it's time to go. And then they embark on the journey, which they expect will take several, several days. 
Abraham's obedience is immediate. Uh, That's highlighted by the explanation that he rose early in the morning. But there's still a lot of time and steps for Abraham to talk himself out of it. I wonder if you recognise where we've seen something very similar to this before. It was only only last week. So you notice up here, uh, I'm just flicking back a verse to verse 2. God says to Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. I wonder if you remember that Isaac isn't Abraham's only son. Do you remember that? Because before Isaac, Abraham fathered one son to his wife's servant, Hagar. And for 10 years, Ishmael was Abraham's only son. And Abraham loved him. But last week, uh, as we looked at in chapter 21... Uh, In the midst of a painful family conflict, Abraham's wife, Sarah, insists that he kick Ishmael out of the home. And God says to Abraham then, listen to your wife, send the boy away. And Abraham listened then as well. So Isaac isn't strictly Abraham's only son, but he's the only son he has left. He's been required to say goodbye to one already, and now the one that's left as well. And last week in chapter 21, when God tells Abraham to farewell his firstborn son, the one named Ishmael, it says this. This is last chapter 21. Abraham rose early in the morning to send his son on his way. And now, just a few years later, history is repeating itself and God is telling him to dispatch with his only remaining son. And it says again exactly this. Abraham rose early in the morning. We're meant to make the connection with the previous chapter. Abraham wasn't asked to say goodbye to his only son once, but twice. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Again, time is stretching out, three days. And the mountain is still only visible in the distance. And from here, Abraham and Isaac advance alone. Verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The constant question uh, that I think is quite normal as, as we read this passage is, what is Abraham thinking all this time? What, what does he think is going to happen? Uh, here, he tells his servants that he will return with Isaac. Is that what Abraham thinks is going to happen? Or is that only what he has to say in the midst of the terrible circumstance he's found in? Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Uh, We have an image of two figures, uh, two men or one boy and one man. The son is moving forward carrying on his own back the wood that he will be sacrificed on. And his father beside him, carrying the fire or the flint uh, and the knife uh, to offer his son's life. And as we talked about with the kids, and if you hadn't seen, haven't seen it already for yourself, it's, it's reminiscent, isn't it, of Jesus' sacrifice. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus carried his own cross, uh, or at least it's cross beam. We don't know for certain, but it's, it's not important which. 
Uh, Jesus carried the timber for his own sacrifice on his own back as he walked out of the city under Roman guard. Uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the other three gospel writers, they all tell us that the physical weight of the cross was too much for Jesus to bear. And so even as he had carried it for himself some of the way, uh, having already been flogged to within an inch of his life, he can't carry it any further. And there's a man called Simon from Cyrene who has to carry it for Jesus the rest of the way. But remember, this stuff is probably just, just this side of about 4,000 years ago. Uh, this is the Abraham stuff, is just this side of about 4,000 years ago. Jesus came almost 2,000 years later. That's 2,000 years ago for us. Uh, in Genesis chapter 22, the symbolism of Jesus' future sacrifice is palpable. But it's not precise. It's a shadow, if you like. Uh, in, in fact, uh, this, uh, this symbolism of Christ's future sacrifice, as we read it in Genesis chapter 22, the only word I can think of is it's kind of demented. It's, it's, it's sick and twisted. It's not right. Because in Jesus' case, Jesus offered his own life knowingly and willingly. That's crucial to the point. But Genesis is very clear that up until this moment, Isaac has no knowledge of what's awaiting him. And that is, that does not correspond with Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus was a willing participant. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? In verse 1, when God called out Abraham's name, Abraham said, "Here I am." Now the son's been asked to uh, the son he, that he's been asked to slay says, "Father." And for the second time, Abraham says, "Here I am." And like every child on a long journey, Isaac is full of questions. We have the fire, the flint. We have the wood. Though I don't really know why I'm carrying it. Why couldn't we have collected it up there or on the way? But what I really want to know, Dad, is are we there yet? And what I really, really don't understand is where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And again, we come back to that question, which again, I think is is strong in most people's mind as they read this, is what is Abraham thinking on this walk? What does Abraham think is going to happen? There's three clues in the Bible for what Abraham might think. Verse 5, you might remember I said, he tells uh, the hired hands that, that he will return with his son Isaac. Although I tend to think that that's about all he could say in that circumstance. I'm not sure if that really indicates what Abraham expects is going to happen. In verse 8, this one on the screen, Abraham says, God will provide. Uh, God had provided Isaac, so maybe that's what he's talking about. Uh, perhaps Abraham has some foreknowledge of a substitute or a hope, but again, maybe, what else can he say? I'll show you one other passage in the Bible. This is the book of Hebrews. Incidentally, Hebrews is what we'll, uh, this is a New Testament book we'll be teaching from Hebrews next term. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 11 uh, reflects on this very passage. And it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Um, He considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The indication here is that maybe Abraham, on the way to offer, Isaac was thinking, well, I'm going to have to go through with the deed, but I hope, perhaps, God is able, and if he's kind, he might even raise my child from the dead. Again, we don't know whether that was really what he was thinking. It's at least a possibility that was open in Abraham's mind. At the end of the day, I don't think we have enough information to know what Abraham thought God would do. But we have enough information to know uh, that Abraham had an idea of what God could do. He certainly knew what God had asked him to do. And that's enough for Abraham. Not my will, but your will be done. You ask me, here I am. As I say, we can't exactly figure out Abraham's thoughts or expectations, but we do have his words. And whether they're an indication of his expectation or not, Abraham's words at this point do foreshadow something significant. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so it's no coincidence that in the New Testament, come the Lord Jesus, Jesus is called the Lamb of God the provided sacrifice, the one God sent. Jesus is the lamb that God would provide to be offered in our place. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Another common question arises at this point, or if it hasn't already arisen for you. If God knew all along that he wasn't going to make Abraham go through with it, with the sacrifice, why didn't God stop proceedings sooner? Why did he even ask in the first place if he knew he wasn't going to make him do it? If God can see Abraham's heart, why doesn't God stop Abraham at the point that Abraham agrees and and God can spare everyone from going through the terrible task. Why not stop Abraham before he made the preparations at home? Why not stop him at some point on the day's long journey leading up to it? Why not stop him at least, for crying out loud, before the trauma of having father and son locked together in the procedure of binding one on an altar designed for sacrifice, by which time the intention is clear to everyone. What's going to happen? The suspense is terrible. It's all told so slowly, methodically, deliberately. More detail to come. Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham is poised. Isaac is tied to a pile of wood on a stone altar. Abraham looms over him with the blade in his hand. He exposes his son's neck. He holds the knife to the soft skin. He tenses his muscles, ready for the swift action of pulling the blade, and he braces for the flow of blood. 
And only now does verse 11 happen. And the angel of the Lord calls from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And for the third time now in this chapter, Abraham says, here I am. What's Abraham thinking now when he says, here I am? Is it relief uh, for the torment at last? Or is it more of a, oh God, what now? There's a beautiful uh, model that Abraham gives all the way through. Here I am. Well, it's relief, thankfully. God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Well, if Abraham didn't fear God before, he definitely fears him now. And God knows it. Now I know that you fear God, he says. And fear is the word, isn't it? It really is the word. I've been using the word terrible a lot this chapter. Uh, Maybe I've been overusing it, but I don't think so. Uh, Maybe you already know this, but the origin of the word terrible isn't so much um, uh, what the word terrible has come to mean. Terrible we think of as as bad, right? Uh, But the origin of the word terrible is in the word terror. And everything about this chapter, up to and including this point, is terrible and terrifying. Abraham has been tested and it's discovered that he does indeed fear God with a holy terror. Please remember, let Genesis chapter 22 remind you that to fear God is not simply to respect or admire him. It's to tremble. For God is holy. Fearing God is not the only way to relate to God. Of course, we should love him as well. Uh, But the picture of uh, the fear of God is is well summed up, I think, uh, when Jesus calms the storm. Uh, The story that's well known. The disciples are afraid. They're on a boat. There's a terrible storm and they are afraid they're going to drown. They fear the storm outside the boat. And when Jesus stands and calms the storm, it says their response is to fear Jesus, who is with them in the boat. Not relief, although I'm sure that was there, but fear. They'd been afraid of the power of the storm and then one more powerful than the storm showed off his strength by simply standing and speaking, and the storm is cowed. Well, there would be no safety in Jesus if his power isn't frighteningly immense. You wouldn't want to get on his wrong side. We fear the Lord. Abraham did. As terrible as what God asked him to do was, to not do it, was more terrible. The consequences of disobeying God are always greater than the consequences of obeying. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Remember how Abraham had told Isaac that the Lord would provide 
Well, nothing like a bit of repetition to drive home a point. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Uh, Back in verse 8, Abraham foreshadowed that the Lord would provide. Uh, We don't know at the time whether he was being hopeful or merely deflecting his son's question, but now faith has become sight and the Lord has provided. But for Abraham, God's past faithfulness becomes for him the pattern of what he expects of God in the future. If God has provided, then we know of God that God is a God who provides, a God who will continue to provide. Uh, this is uh, part of part of what we see of faith in this story of Abraham is almost blind, right? We don't like to think of faith as primarily in terms of that blind leap of faith, but it almost is. God says, "Slay your son." He doesn't ask; he just starts doing it. There's a, there's a terrible, frightening, blind just trust. There's a leap in that. But so much of faith isn't that. So much of faith is looking at what is the pattern of the past to make a pretty good educated guess of what the pattern for the future will be. So Abraham, in the moment that he has seen God just provide, decides this is who God is. God is a God who provides, who has provided, who will continue to provide. Do you get it? What he's done, he will keep doing. It's his pattern. It's who he is. So God had promised he would provide a son, The Lord did provide. God had asked Abraham to offer his son, but instead the Lord provided the sacrifice in his son's place, and so God becomes known as the one who provides. And so it is significant that God's past pattern of faithfulness would become the pattern of what we should expect from the future with faith. That just as God has provided, he will again provide. Just as God didn't withhold from us even his own son... Even while we were his enemies, well, that's a, that's a providing kind of God. And he will continue to provide. And he asks us simply in the meantime to say, here I am, and make ourselves available. Speeding up at the very end. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It really is in just a handful of verses a summary of almost everything else that God has said, uh, every other spoken word that God has said to Abraham in the chapters leading up to this point. The key elements are all repeated. Uh, That his son... Uh, His one promised son would be the start of a whole nation that would outnumber the sand and the stars, even that detail's there. That not only would Abraham's children be blessed, but that the whole earth would be blessed by Abraham's children. This is a nice return to normality in terms of the way God speaks uh, to Abraham. And so, verse 19, Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. But what was their life like after all that they'd seen and everything they'd just been through? We don't know. Except Isaac does live by faith, so he's not totally poisoned by it. And I would say uh, that maybe even there, 
There's a lesson to embolden us as parents to not be afraid of what your children would think of the Lord if you were to offer, if you were to not offer your children, but if you were to give everything and hold nothing back in faithfulness to God. Does God require you to make a sacrifice? Well, I wouldn't want to make my life hard for my children because they might not think God is good anymore. Well, if Abraham can pull it off under those circumstances, then maybe we shouldn't fear what obedience would look like to our children and expect that if we obey God, then our children too may obey him. It's a terrible chapter. Uh, You might be with us today and uh, not be a Christian yourself. And in some ways, this passage is an advertisement for why you probably shouldn't be one. Because what kind of God asks for the sacrifice of a man's only son? In one respect, what God asks of Abraham is never repeated. Abraham seems to serve as an example, a lesson for him and a lesson for the rest of us to learn for ourselves through him. You won't be asked to do exactly what Abraham did. That's not going to come up again. But in another sense, it is a theme. A man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the man said, which ones? And Jesus said, honour your father and your mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. And the man said, I'm in. (laughs) I've done all of those things ever since I was a boy without fault. And Jesus gives him some credit. He says, true. But there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have everlasting treasure in heaven. And the man leaves that conversation with Jesus downcast and sad because he has great worldly wealth and he won't give it up for Jesus. And the lesson of that story at the end usually goes something like this. Well, you know, God's not really asking you to give everything you have, sell it all and give it to the poor. And in a way, that's true. Because that is, it is again, it's a unique thing that Jesus requires of that man. Because Jesus, for that man, is putting his finger on the thing that for that man, he will not give up. But the question is very real, is what might that thing be for you? Luke chapter 9. It says this in nearly all the Gospels, by the way. Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In one respect, the cross is the thing that Jesus did for us. And it's not asked of us to take up the cross. He did it for us. He is the provided lamb, the substitute for us, dying for our sins so that we can go free and not be punished for our sin. In one respect, that's true and that might be all you need to know. Except in another respect, you are required to take up your cross as well. It's not only true to say that Jesus did it all for you, but he asks you 
to make sacrifices, to lay down your life, to be willing to die for him. And God asked Abraham something even worse. Not for his own life, but for the life of his son. Well, the rich young man wouldn't give up his wealth, but Abraham was willing to give his son. And that is just something else, isn't it? Jesus said to the rich man, one thing you lack, sell what you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the man doesn't do it. But then the disciples say, this is ongoing from that one conversation, Peter began to say to him, "Uh, see, we've left everything and followed you. We've done it. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The rewards actually are immediate and to come. It is pretty extreme because in a way, you know, Jesus does say as well, not just in a way, Jesus actually says, unless you hate your brother or sister or mother and father, father, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. And I've talked about that before, to say that uh, he, he's saying that you, at some point you will have to choose. You may have to choose your father or me, your son or me. Abraham made the terrible choice, <laughs> the frightening one, but it was the right one. And I'll say this in conclusion. Not only will Jesus repay everything you give and more, he will also never ask from you what he is not willing to give himself. He asks for you to take up your cross and follow him. And then he leads by example by taking up the cross to lead. God didn't ask Abraham to do something that God wasn't willing to do himself. He asked Abraham to offer his son, though he never quite had to do it. Quite. God followed through on the same. He did give his son, and Jesus gave his life for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you will strike our hearts with a holy terror. That we would be, that although we may be afraid of what it would cost to follow you, that we would be more afraid of what it would cost to disobey you. We pray. Uh, that you will help us to make the sacrifices necessary uh, to take hold of the blessings that you promise. And we thank you for uh, the free and generous gift of your Son. 
you gave even your son, your only son, whom you loved, the one named Jesus. And you gave him for us. We pray that as we contemplate our sacrifices that you might be asking us to make, that we would also contemplate your generosity and rest in your grace that you have provided the lamb. Amen.